in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today, my good friend and co-host, Mr. Chad Robinson. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well this evening. All right. We brought back on Dr. Mark Gardner, professor of communication from Graceland University in Laomi, Iowa, but he's coming from us today here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's good to be back. And for those of you who would like to hear more of Mark, if you if you like these insights today on today's movie, you can definitely go back and check out Mark. He is our third time returning host, so you can hear him as well on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, as well as The Graduate. Now, to kick us off here, this movie has an iconic ending. What is a movie that just didn't nail the dismount and it didn't end right and it just didn't work for you? Like, you might have liked everything else, but the ending didn't click for you. Mark? There probably are several I could go with, but Grease stands out to me. I mean, uh, the musical Grease, like, if you remember the end where they're flying off in the car for no apparent reason, that was just kind of how they chose to end that movie. I thought yeah. that was always weird. That's totally fair. Yeah. Well, they didn't fix it with Grease too. No, 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 no. They leaned into it, I think, more. Yes. Chad, how about you? What's a movie that didn't nail the dismount correctly? I'm going after The Village. I think it's the biggest disappointment regarding endings that I can think of. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And mine is going to be This is the End. This movie was so meta and so breaking the fourth wall. I loved it, and I felt like for all the creativity of having these big name actors play themselves on a screen. I was very disappointed with how they wrapped everything up and it got like a laugh, but it wasn't, it wasn't as clever as the rest of the movie. So that was mine. Well, when you start with Michael Sarah and a very vicious Coke habit, it's, it's pretty much downhill from there. Uh, I, I thought I liked, the, I liked the movie, but uh, I did too. What's the last movie you saw, Mark? In the theaters, I saw the Dr. Strangelove multiverse and wasn't crazy about it. So I'll go with a better option. I saw Nightmare Alley recently. Um, watched, I streamed that. Guillermo del Toro. Really enjoyed that one. Everything he does is great. I like, I like yeah. him anyway. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Chad, what's the last movie you saw? I watched Juon, which is the original Grudge movie uh, remade in America a few years later. I'd heard the hype. I'm not the biggest Grudge fan, but I went and watched the source material and... I guess the series isn't for me. It doesn't matter what language it's in. It just doesn't quite work. Chad prefers movies with actors who have jaws as opposed to those that don't. I mean, the sounds are on point. That clicking is fantastic. Everything else? Yeah. Okay. And the last one that I watched was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. My first time seeing it. I hadn't seen it before. I had a really good time, but uh, ironically, this movie might not have nailed the dismount for me 100%. It doesn't finish out nearly as fun as it starts. Very good. I would now, agree with that. Now, a movie that does finish out well, let's talk today. Chad, what movie or what are we covering? We are going all the way back to 1942 for Casablanca. This movie stars Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, Paul Heinrich, Claude Rains, and Conrad Veidt. 
So it comes out in 1942. It has a budget of $878 million. Some things listed at a million dollars. Regardless of how much it costs, it all time domestically, it has taken in $10.4 million and returned 10 times its amount. So uh, its place in the box office that year was number four. Uh, it's not as, not as big of a smash as I was expecting, but still strong. Uh, number four in the box office, uh, according to thenumbers.com. Now, that's a November release. I am unclear if this is the victim of uh, a split year because 43, the movie comes out in 42, but 43, it grosses more of its money. So I think what's happening here, and I don't have the ability to stitch it together, is I'm curious to see if it would finish higher in the box office if it didn't have one of those hinging year releases. But the movie that places ahead of it in 43, though, is The Song of Burnett. And the movie that places behind it is a guy named Joe. And the number one movie in 1942 when it comes out is Bambi. IMDb has a rating of 8.5 for Casablanca. Seems criminally low. I think people are just tanking that to make their favorite movies go up the rankings higher. Because Rotten Tomatoes critics give it a 99% and the audience score is 95%, which seems far more appropriate. It is an Academy Award winner three times for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. Some big ones there. And it has five more nominees for Best Actor for Bogart. Best Supporting Actor to Claude Rains, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and Best Scoring in a Dramatic or Comedy Picture. IFI loves this movie because it is number two on the number top 100 movies of all time. It is number one in the top 100 greatest passions. It is number 32 top 100 cheers, which are the most inspiring movies. It is number 37 on the top 100 thrills. And Rick Blaine is number four on the top 100 heroes and villains. And it has a whopping six, six of the top 100 greatest movie quotes of all time, coming in at 5, 20, 28, 32, 43, and 67. We'll get into those later, probably. But this movie has some serious clout behind it. Mark, you helped us select this movie before. I'm assuming you've seen it before. What was your background with this? Well, I first saw this as a college student, film student, probably 10 or 12 years ago. And since that point, I've taught it several times to other undergrads. So I've seen it several times by now and most recently taught it as part of a film history class. So how was your first time taking in this movie, which clearly came out well before your era? I mean, full disclosure, have never been one to enjoy black and white movies. I don't gravitate to them. I never, especially as a high schooler, or, you know, young adult. Um, so it wasn't something I was looking forward to in film class. I can't say I remember enjoying it all that much either. But when you read more about the history behind it and kind of how it is centered in the real world events that were happening around that time, it gets more and more fascinating. So the more I learn about it, um, the more I enjoy watching it every time. Yeah. Chad, what about you? What was your background with this one? This is another one of my movie appreciation class movies. So it was shown to me in college. And I was looking forward to it. I knew it was one of the big ones that I just hadn't gotten to yet. So that was a treat for me. And I thoroughly enjoyed it coming away from movie appreciation. What frustrated me was we didn't get much background. I think due to class limitations and just time and everything else, they essentially said, hey, we're going to show you an important movie. We're not going to talk about why it's important or why it should be appreciated. Just here it is. So digging into the research, seeing the time frame when this was filmed, you know, 1942, World War II is actually raging on. 
it increases my appreciation for this movie tenfold. Yeah, I came to this movie later than you guys. I got to it after college. Now, I, it was almost one of those movies I wanted to get around to seeing. But sometimes I, I'll watch one of those top 100 movies. And um, they're, they can be long or they can be uh, maybe a little bit disappointing. I'm looking at you, Citizen Kane. Yeah. And, and then I got to Casablanca. And maybe my tempered expectations were there, but I, I was blown away. I loved it. I, I just, I, it was way enjoyable. It was well made. And it didn't overstay its welcome either. It's not incredibly long. And I was really surprised that, you know, when you look at the top 100 movies of all time, I had, this is number two on it by the AFI. And I had already seen Citizen Kane. And I was already kind of mad Citizen Kane got picked as the number one. But then I came out of this and went like, this? Like, they knew to put this at number two, but they put this at number one. And I was scratching my head and I was confused. <laughs> so I will, I will always... Uh, prefer to teach Citizen Kane over Casablanca anytime. <laughs> just because of the techniques and the narrative? There's just a lot more to cover with it. Yeah, I mean, the history is definitely really interesting. So as a film history class, it makes a lot of sense. But yeah. You may have to come back in and educate me later. I'm still that uh, unintellectual viewer going like, yeah, this didn't do it for me. Yeah. Well, now I have all of my lectures on Zoom, so I'll just send you that, Russell. <laughs> I might listen. Hey, it can be an important movie while still not being a good movie. So, hey. In fairness, Ebert said that if he had to pick a best movie, he said, I'd still probably pick Citizens Kane. But if he had to pick his most enjoyable movie, the one that he most wanted to see and enjoyed going back to and watching over and over again, it was Casablanca. Yeah, I, I do think when I teach either film i rewatch casablanca more than i rewatch citizen kane so maybe that says something too and we are going to spoil this movie and this is not a movie i think you want spoiled so i hope you've seen it and if you haven't i really encourage you to check it out and we will be back after these messages welcome to the all 80s movies podcast i'm bill and I'm Jason, and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, we're back, and this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. Now, Chad, for those who haven't seen Casablanca since 1942, do you want to refresh people's memories? Oh, yes, our, our 80-plus octogenarian audience. Yes, Rick Blaine is an exiled American during World War II who has set up a popular night spot in Casablanca. Rick has grown cynical and refuses to stick his neck out for anyone. Unfortunately for Rick, he comes into possession of two valuable letters of transit which would allow a refugee to escape Nazi-controlled territory. Nazi Major Strasser arrives and along with the local Captain Renault, attempts to recover the letters of transit and detain a resistance leader by the name of Victor Laszlo. Laszlo brings along a young woman named Ilsa, a one-time flame of Rick's. Rick is devastated to see Ilsa again since she ran out on him in Paris, but comes to find out she's married to Laszlo. Rick promises Ilsa the letters of transit 
in order to run away with her and tricks Major Strasser, resulting in Rick shooting the Major. Rick then implores Ilsa to go with Laszlo in the departing plane, promising her it's best for her future and for Laszlo, but they'll always have the memories of Paris. Rick gives up on his love in a heroic act and is surprised when Captain Raynault covers for him. Rick and the captain leave, with Rick believing this is a start of a beautiful friendship. Yeah, this is a movie that, if you talk to the actors, they, this thing was kind of stitched together on the fly. Nobody knew that this thing was going to be this hailed masterpiece. And it's really interesting as you go through here because it doesn't show at all. This story is really cool to me. And it's funny, everybody kind of initially said, like, this is just typical cheeseball fluff. I got to say, Maybe I'm not that adept to the movies of the era, but Mark, tell us, like, is it the story that's elevated this up? Is it the acting performance? What makes this not just cheeseball fluff? Well, I mean, it is worth mentioning, the way I did a little bit already, the time that it was made, because I think it, it, it was rare and probably still is to some extent that a film is about a war that is currently taking place and then it's set in that context you know i'm thinking about a lot of movies maybe made during world war ii but were referential to world war one trying to make a commentary on present day but so this was kind of a, a different kind of experience where we're in the throes of war and now we have a movie set in that time period so i think that's very progressive especially for the 1940s although production of movies were much quicker back then but still i think that that that's worth mentioning there was an, a captive audience for a narrative that takes place in the world that they that audiences recognized. And they don't jam it down your throat, but they take a decisive stance towards becoming active oh, yeah. in the war as well. Movies serve as propaganda in a way, but this is done in a way that kind of says you can't be neutral on this moving train. Rick's character is kind of neutral in the beginning, and he himself becomes quite involved. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was a huge weapon of the united states they weaponized film walt disney was contracted to do some u.s military propaganda there was another anti-nazi sentiment film at 1941 i can't remember the name we see charlie chaplin making fun of hitler and the dictator stuff like that so really the industry gets heavily involved in this it's one of those things where at a time when people didn't really want to get involved with World War II. And if I'm not mistaken, this movie was picked up shortly thereafter the Pearl Harbor bombing, which obviously you're releasing this after a change in the public opinion. This is capturing not only the moment of the war, as Mark pointed out, but it's, it's an important turn in how everybody was viewing the situation as well. Yeah, Japan referred to it as waking the sleeping dragon. Bad idea. Yeah, yeah, don't yeah. don't poke them with a stick. Yes. I also read that it was banned in Ireland in 1943 because it went against their war neutrality laws. Hmm. And so, and it was also re-edited again in 1950s, I believe, and it was shown in Germany for the first time in the 19 West Germany at the time, um, 1950s, but it was re-edited to remove any mention of World War II or Nazis. Right. Yeah, it, it <laughs> was like 1970 something before they got the true version. It was yeah, it was mid 70s. 
What do you have left at that point, though? I mean, all the bad guys' scenes are taken out. There's no antagonist. It's a 30-minute shorter movie, I think, is what the trivia said. So, yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty severe. They, they overdub some of the things, too. Yeah, they had to. And it hinges on an atomic scientist escaping yeah. prison or something like that. So it... It kind of has a little mention of, of atomic warfare, kind of referential, but that's like the only... You're making me want to see the Star Wars version where the Empire is removed from, from culpability. <laughs> like, what do you have left with just these rebels? What I find so fascinating, and you mentioned this earlier, the cast not really liking it, what was berated the most from all of these actors that I'm seeing is the dialogue. And I think of, you mentioned Star Wars, I think of the actors in Star Wars where they're saying, these are ridiculous lines, we're not going to say them, we're going to ad-lib. But what stands out to me in Casablanca and what I think makes it such a great movie is the dialogue. You mentioned, hey, we've got six of the top 100 quotes, and they're high. It's just fascinating listening to the actors play off of each other. So I wonder if any of it was ad-libbed, or kind of doctored in a way because what Bogart's saying was this is the worst movie I've ever been in and it wasn't it clearly wasn't he's been in some good ones in fairness yeah it's safe to say that this could be at the top of the mountain we covered him in Maltese Falcon earlier and I really enjoyed that movie but I like this even more I do think some of those top quotes that have lasted the test of time they were improvised on the spot like here's looking at you kid was allegedly something that Bogart said to Bergman after watching her play poker, like she was learning English on set and they were teaching her English by playing poker with her. And that's kind of, he congratulated her after a good hand. And then they just put that line in the movie. You know, Louis, this looks like the beginning of a beautiful friendship was a late ad. Not sure how to wrap this up. And you know what? I like that because it makes me feel a lot better for Rick's not totally cast off. Uh, you, you, it's a nice moment of like, ah, there's still something here for Rick, too. At least he gets a beautiful friendship out of it. <laughs> well, the original female lead in the play that the movie's based on was a not likable character at all. So I think that that also changed the dynamic of their relationship. I think it happened when Ingrid Bergman was cast. They decided she was too pretty to make her a greedy character. So they had to rewrite the whole character for her. Well, first of all, yeah, she's, she's very charming. And second of all, this movie doesn't work if she's not likable. I mean, instead of having a love triangle where like they're both trying to win her over, it would turn into quickly, uh, you know, like, oh, why don't you have her? Nah, nah, I mean, right. I mean, she's clearly fallen for you. You should take her. Nah, no. Nah, I mean, you were here first. And... Get this harpy on the plane now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so an alternative universe version of Casablanca sounds very funny. Uh, this, this sounds like a comedy actually waiting to happen. Trying to get the other person shacked up with them so you don't have to break up with them instead. This movie was funny, though, especially Captain Reynolds. I love the role of, he's not a bumbling buffoon, but he has some great lines. Oh, yeah, he's no buffoon at all. He, he, he's, just, he's a little bit slimy, and that makes him very fun. Yeah, the playing a fun game where they put it on a bill and I rip it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I like the one where, uh, you know, it's like, hey, you got to shut this place down. Why? doesn't matter. Just shut it down. And he goes... Everybody out. Everybody out. Why? On what grounds? I'm surprised to find out there's gambling here. And then somebody <laughs> literally walks up to him and then says, here are your winnings. Oh, thank you. Yes, that, 
That reminded yeah. me straight up of Clue. Like it seemed like a scene straight out of Clue. <laughs> I could see that. But you're right. That was very funny. There's moments of genuine laughter in here as well. The Maitre D character gets some good laughs as well. Uh, the, the bartender's funny. Actually, yeah. Rick works with funny people now that I think about it. Sam is also funny. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that's attributed to the screenwriters that came and went and came back again. But yeah, I agree that the dialogue, I think, is what moves the whole movie forward. Yeah, it, gives, it gives the tone that it needs. Just really well shot, really well. I mean, it's, it's a nominee for best cinematography, too. There's moments where this isn't just a matter of what the words are, though, too. I mean, there's poignancy in what they're doing. I mean, I mean Bergman, especially, does so much without even speaking at moments of this. Uh, and the camera is working with her to capture those feels so well i'm not i'm not as adept in this but mark it seems like this could be a master class in just how to shoot face acting and like how to shoot it oh yeah they used a whole different lens for bergman when she was on the screen i think it's called a gauze lens and it's meant to make the actors or actors eyes sparkle but then also give it kind of a hazy background so it kind of brings the focus to their eyes and so i think that that shows definitely in her scenes and then for the other scenes yeah the lighting, the, the set design, everything. It just worked really well together. Really well done. That's fascinating. This has to be one of the earliest or maybe the earliest trope of that spinning globe while the over voice is going through, the narrator's talking. Oh, I like that. I'm fine with it if this is like one of the first instances, but it becomes such a trope. That reference Citizen Kane a little bit for me when I'm watching it. I'm like, I could see this as something Orson Welles would have tried to stick in. Ah, mm. I like maps in movies. I'm, maybe this is the Indiana Jones <laughs> fan of me, but I am, oh, I am a sucker for lines on maps while music is playing in a narrator added on top of this i'm okay with that you're future proofing the movies for for dummies like me not history majors like chad and film experts like mark so i mean i need that map in the beginning to remind me of wait where is this why are we here morocco's in northern africa that had involvement in world war ii and you find out it does and uh, it's it's its own part of the story that you otherwise could could even be lost in time so in a way it's keeping that piece of history a little bit alive although i'm not sure how accurately necessarily but uh it, it certainly makes you remember this is a world war not just the european war accuracy is problematic there's no such thing as a letter of transit that was just a plot device for this movie it wouldn't have been a thing but hey they had to make something interesting and that's maltese falcon that's another device. So yeah, Humphrey Bogart's used to that. But yeah, Northern Africa was a front. I mean, Erwin Rommel took his forces across Northern Africa. So it was a big stage for World War II. I mean, that's just what Hitchcock later calls a MacGuffin. It's something everybody wants. You don't know what it is, but it doesn't matter what it is. Everybody right. wants it. And it matters a whole lot. These letters of transit influence a lot of the characters in here. It literally ends to Peter Lorre's untimely death. I love Peter Lorre, so I was sad to see him leave the movie when he did, but uh, it does, it touches so many people. Rick could use it himself. Uh, Victor and, and Ilsa end up using it together. Louis wants to find this as well. So, I mean, it, it's literally hidden in Sam's piano. It's the straw that stirs the drink. You, you need them. You know, you're right. Playwright Joan Allison was expecting somebody to call her on that. Hey, there's no letters of transit, but nobody ever did. And when you've got something this good, nor should they. Right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Chad, because as I'm watching it, I, I didn't know that about transit papers. I just took it at face value and it made sense to me. But then, the, yeah, the more I'm hearing you talk about it and think about it, it's like, 
yeah, why would there be like just a random and, and it's good for anybody who has it, right? So it's like the golden ticket. If you have it, you can use it. Like that doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, it's the get out of jail free card. That's a real thing, right? Yes. Yeah. Especially in Nazi territory. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's how OJ Simpson got out of jail, right? He had a get out of jail free card. I mean, right? Sure. Sure. When Disney makes that movie, I'm sure that'll that's how it'll happen. <laughs> It's interesting. I like this world that we see, though. Getting to America is a big part of the culture here. The the Blue Parrot is this other club. You have this other character, Sidney Greenstreet. Again, Maltese Falcon parallel here. He's he's the fat man from Maltese Falcon. You know, he's the king of the black market to get people in there. And we find out that Rick's club, they let him operate because he's not the one selling the papers to get to America, even though they know what happens there. And also, he kind of greases Captain Louie there and stuff like that. You really got to watch this movie more than once to pick up all these subtleties because your head's a little bit locking in on who's who and what's going to happen. And this movie's pretty rich with all the little details and the intricacies, which is why I find it so funny that they said, the actors were saying that this doesn't seem well written because the cause and effect's pretty good. Like, one thing leads to another. It's Stuff's happening quickly. There's a reason this is on the thrills list. This isn't explosions and gunfights, which. Normally I say would make any movie better, but in this case, it's very thrilling out of suspense of the emotion of three people, even though that doesn't amount to a hill of beans. <laughs> when you bring in the man who laughs as your primary villain, there's your attention. Yeah. We also see the force of the Nazis and like what that felt like. You see that the French are being occupied and you see that they've lost their home in a way And in that scene where they sing the German fight song, if you will, and then and this French national song is played, that's a powerful moment in there. And so I don't know if this movie is only made better by the war, because I think it's really great. I think that's a big piece of, obviously, World War II is such a big part of what happened with not only the U.S., but the entire world, but certainly raises the stakes by going beyond just the relationship and turning it into, again, Rick acts on something greater than his own interest, even though repeatedly he says i stick my neck out for no one he says this but uh you know he's he's kind of like that tough guy who's not uh, that tough i have a friend who's like yeah i had kids just because my wife wanted them it's like but he loves them to death and he says that uh, but it doesn't it doesn't register with what they are that's an interesting thing in a character instead of just spoon feeding the audience he's actually literally doing and feeling the opposite of what he's doing rick's a very interesting character I always find it interesting. They don't tell you why he can't go back to America, but he's yeah. helping other people. So it's just this ambiguous thing of, what did he do? I did wonder that. Yes. Um, well, I guess there's always some positive ambiguity around, but the original play used very little of it. It went through so many rewrites before the filming started and the original play wasn't ever funded they couldn't get funding to actually make it a play so warner brothers scooped it up and made a film out of it so i think there's more to that story that maybe makes more sense the the play itself maybe um was a better idea than it was uh, a fully fledged script um and then warner brothers got their hands on it we get a little of it's almost han solo i understand this is 30 years prior to star wars but the han solo type character because he's gun running he is uh, smuggling things and we do know that and he's refusing to stick his neck out so i'm sure lucas took a ton of insp- inspiration from this movie to create someone like han solo oh yeah yeah and spielberg too i mean spielberg uh, there's an interview of him talking about it and he's just lit up 
with all that he learned from it. To your point, I think this is influential as well, earning its way high up on the AFI. You certainly see why. It's funny, there's so many reactions on YouTube of people today watching this movie and be like, I don't really like old movies. And, you know, and then they film themselves watching it. In that, you see people completely sucked in by what's happening here and the characters and the performances. So there's something clearly that's holding up uh, over time, even as we've gotten way past World War II. It's interesting that this part of it is bigger than just its connection to the war. There's something here that's holding up really, really well. And I actually am having a little bit of a hard time putting my finger on why it's so enduring. Mark, do you, do you know why that is? I have a theory, and it has to do with Michael Curtis, the director, and kind of his style. From what I've read about him, I've only seen a couple of his movies, but he tries to not be too constrained by genres, which in the 1940s, you're coming out of the, kind of, well, you're probably still in the studio era, but towards the end of it. And genres were everything. I mean, you marketed a film based on the genre that it was being sold as. And so very rarely, and especially in the 1940s, you didn't have a lot of movies that could be any number of genres, where this one was very purposeful in that it wasn't just a romantic movie. It wasn't just a political thriller. It wasn't just a wartime drama. You know, it checks all these boxes. And I think that might have something to do with it. I mean, I'm trying to think of older movies that did that. And, you know, I, it might be one of the first that I can think of, at least, that would have started us. Whereas today, movies, I mean, all the all the good movies that are made today rarely can be categorized as one specific genre. I mean, that kind of is the effect of postmodernism, right? That that's, lines are blurry, blurred and categories are are overlapping. But this might be one of the first films I can think of, at least, that really started that process. Ah, you touched onto something that does do it for me. You're right. My favorite comedies often have more than just being walls of jokes, although being walls of jokes like Airplane is certainly very effective for me too. So I'm, I'm not saying that you can't win me over that way, but uh, if you can touch somebody while you make them laugh, while you excite them, and there's something that's so human about that. We're all watching in on these people's lives. We're viewers into their world. And you're really breaking the walls down when you do that. I think that's a really good point, Mark, because, I mean, I remember when we covered the out-of-towners, Neil Simon said in an interview, great writing is not just all drama and all comedy. I put comedy in my dramas. I put drama into my comedy because that's what life is. That's what makes people connect to it. That is a, probably a really good reason what you said, Mark, and that's probably, probably ahead of its time in that regard, too, because I think that is true. Well, I think, too, like, I'm thinking about, like, when I first heard about this movie, probably was years before I actually saw it, it was always kind of told to me as a great romantic story, a love story, really. Yep. Mm -hmm. But in watching it, that's not what I get from it. There's one part of the movie that's a flashback in which we actually see a romantic sort of storyline or plot point, but everything in the real time of the movie has very little to do with romance. And so, and I think that maybe is part of what draws you in. You go in expecting this to be a great romantic movie, great couple narrative, but it really is so much more than that. And so you kind of get engrossed in it. Yeah. I don't think my wife would wind up liking this movie. We were going to watch it together. She's never seen it, but she has a problem with, this is probably the worst comparison to Casablanca I can come up with, but it's similar. Uh, there's a movie called The Breakup and it, it ends where they're not together, spoiler. But same thing with this movie. I wonder how the audience at the time reacted to, hey, the two cast members 
that they want to see together aren't together. I I think some of the endurance is just our our relationship to Rick of seeing, okay, here's this guy who justifiably is very jaded. We see his heart just stomped on, and in the end, he still makes the selfless decision, and he puts himself in peril. We get the kind of happy walk into the fog ending, but the reality is his life is in danger. He had to give up his club. He's got to go to uh, Brazil. I can't pronounce it. Another city. But uh, yeah, his life is upended due to this choice. Yeah. I mean, he killed a guy too. You got to live with that. You know I mean? Yeah. And uh, another thing we also have to live with here is that we compared the breakup with Ben Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston to Casablanca. <laughs> I, I'm aware. I'm aware. It's just the other couple does not stay together in the end. Sadness. No, you're right. I, I was also expecting something. I don't know how it gets where it does in the romance movies because it's actually putting something greater than your individual love, which is, I think, the biggest. There's many themes in this movie, but that's, that's a big one. You know, it's about, we, hey, we, all, we got our own little thing in America, but we need to get involved in the war. And Rick has gotten involved. And if you don't, it's going to come to your doorstep, too, much as it has come to Rick and much as it came to America in the end, too. So it's, it's interesting that it does get those romantic points. It's a good love triangle. It's one of the best love triangles I can think of, for sure. But that's full of good feeling, but I'm not sure how romantic it is. I think, I think you really connect with Ingrid Bergman's character of like, if, can you imagine if your spouse, you thought to be dead, and you're really starting to start hitting it off with somebody, and you know, it's, all, it's all coming back into peace, and then all of a sudden that person's not dead? I mean, that is a real shocking moment. And the situation that she's been put into, whew, yeah, just stop and think about that. And then you got all this war stuff happening going around at the same time. Many layers of complexity and levels of urgency while dealing with personal crisis. That's, that's great. It's good writing. What shocks me is the ending that we know and love almost wasn't. Like it was, no one knew what the ending was until it was shot. Like there were several different versions of the ending. The screenwriters had different plans and they ended up deciding that they wanted to have some sort of positive message at the end to show kind of, I guess, to highlight the the conflict that war creates for society in general. So to end it on a positive note, but that the last line was ended up being dubbed in because they didn't even record that on the day. So yeah, they had all these different endings that they were thinking about. And this one just ended up being the one they ended up choosing, but there wasn't a set goal. When they started filming, they had no idea. No one on set knew how this movie was ending when they started I, filming. I did see an interview with Ingrid Bergman much later talking about she was much older, still very charming. She said that the filming seemed like it was chaotic, that they had no faith in the movie because the script was so bad and it was written day by day and there was nothing clear about it. And we didn't know where we were going. She didn't know as an actress which man she was supposed to love and they just told her to play it in the middle and that made her feel uncomfortable. And don't make, don't put too much seriousness into it, they would tell her. And because we don't know which man you're going to end up with, and they're just going to shoot both endings. And they allegedly shot the first ending and said, ah, this is it. So it's possible to Ingrid Bergman's and Bogar's defense, they might have lucked out. They were flying by the seat of their pants and they hit a bullseye. It seems like maybe 
it did come to this. Ebert kind of refutes this and saying, like, of course you're gonna you know, like they're not gonna let her walk off with the other man. Her husband's still alive. This is just this is just ludicrous. They'll never let it through the censors. You know, of course she's gonna go off with them, but I think that's high in sight in 2020. It does sound like, at least the legend goes, they don't know where this thing's going. Yeah, there's a lot of serendipity that happens around this film. I, as time goes by, is so important throughout this movie, but they didn't want it. They wanted to go back and shoot an original song, and Ingrid Berg- Bergman cut her hair for another role so they couldn't reshoot. So there's a lot of stories like that of, oh, we were going to do something completely different that possibly would have ruined the movie or at least severely impacted it, and they just couldn't for scheduling reasons, hair reasons, or budget. They went $100,000 over budget. The studio wasn't happy, but... You know, I'm sure they were happy with $10 million. Yeah, yeah, I think they made it back. So the other thing, though, about that is Bergman wanted to be on the movie you're talking about, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Yeah. Uh, and mm. and she wanted to be in that instead of this. So she was a little bit like, ah. But back then, actors don't have nearly the leverage they do later in history. They're, they're chained to a studio. And in fact, Bergman's not even in the Warner Brothers studio. They had to go to the producer's and Ingrid Bergman's contract with, was with other producers, so they had to go get a lend on her, which they would do back in the day, and they were explaining the movie to these producers, and they were just like, ah, this is just like Algiers, that's fine, and they, they, they loaned her out, if you will, but it's interesting, this wasn't really her ideal career path, and to her, she got her cake and eat it, got to eat it too, she got to do For Whom the Bell Tolls, which is a well-appreciated movie in its own right, the scheduling worked out in the end that she did that after this. And had she not done that movie after this and cut her hair and all that stuff, then, you know, like you said, the iconic song would not be part of this movie. You mentioned Algiers. That's the whole reason this is called Casablanca, because that movie did so well. Yeah, otherwise, they were just going to call it Everybody Comes to Rick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's what the it's, play was called. Yep. That's not a very good title. Yeah, it, it doesn't roll off the tongue the same no. way. Uh, Russell, I don't know if you saw this, but I, I think I'll throw it out here since we're talking about how untouchable this film is. Madonna wanting, and it was mid-2000s, Madonna wanted to remake the film. She wanted to cast herself as Ilsa and Ashton Kutcher as Rick. And <laughs> every studio unanimously said no, told her it was untouchable. Uh, she. Uh, she she gave up. Do you want the Madonna movie with Ashton Kutcher? Um, I I do not want that movie. <laughs> That's the darkest timeline right there. When <laughs> I just said I wanted to see a version of Star Wars where there is no Empire, and I don't want this movie subscribed. So <laughs> you sir have gone too far. Well, they did make a TV series out of it in the 1980s and that history is a little bit fascinating too i don't know anything about the series i just know um from one source and i it, i will say it's an unconfirmed source so take that for what it is but the playwright the original playwrights of everybody comes to ricks lost all of their control over the story licensing laws were a little bit easier to manipulate on behalf of studios back then so warner brothers bought got every all the rights to it and so the playwrights weren't ever allowed to produce their play and so when they sued warner brothers i believe in the 80s 
this is what the source said, that Warner Brothers had to, well, Warner Brothers won the suit, but in winning the suit, they had to agree that they would produce another version of the movie to show that they were going to use the story. And so they made this 1980s TV, I think it was a miniseries, and I don't think it did very well. I've never heard anything about it, didn't really look much into it. Hmm. But then they ended up funding a stage production in 1991 so that was the first time the play ever saw a live theater audience was in 1991 and the playwrights i think were in their 90s at that point and were given a hundred thousand dollars as a payment to allow them to make this play in london i would think this would make a good play in fairness minimal sets yeah yeah that's true also paul heinrich he didn't want to do this either. He thought it was below him. He was coming off of a hot movie. He's the guy who plays Laszlo in the movie, just for clarification. They looked at some other actors like Herbert Marshall, Joseph Cotton. I don't like their picks for this movie, and I actually don't love their pick for Victor Laszlo in this one. I like Victor's character in this one. He's not that likable, necessarily, I would argue. I have never had a problem with him. He just seems maybe a little bit milk toast, I guess. Mm, yeah. He doesn't have that passion that stirs you. Like He's supposed to be a magnetic, likable guy who can turn the room. And I don't see it at all. I mean, I would say the scene with the competing national anthems is probably his best scene where yeah. he does that. But outside of that, yeah, I think he's, he was kind of forgettable in a role that maybe didn't need to be. And he did not get along well with the cast. Bergman said that he was a bit of a prima donna, and he did not get along well with Bogart as well, so... Yeah, he said he didn't want to play second fiddle to Humphrey Bogart, so might have shown up. Or it might have been Bogart's rampant drinking. <laughs> you know what? It doesn't really show. I mean, and in fairness, there's a decent chunk of this movie where he's drunk, drunk. in a bar and yes. sad. So, I mean, uh, you know, that, that, that's what we call method acting, right? I mean, sure. yeah. I mean, get into the character. But I get all the feels from this. Like, you see his pain. You see the conflict that Ilsa has. And you see the hurt and, like, Okay, yeah, like the situation was bad, but I mean, I still, I still kind of have feelings for you. But now you hate me, and how hurtful that would be. All of that is conveyed through looks. They don't spoon feed this to you. They don't underestimate the audience. They're throwing information at you quickly. Like I said, this this is rich for a rewatch because of all these nuances that are going on there. But because they're not spoon feeding you, you can attain that level of complexity that's going on there. And again, they trusted their cameraman, their director. I mean, I'm not that familiar with Cartesia's work, but it's. It's very Ooh, good here. I bet you are. Oh, I think I bet you are too. Yeah, the jazz singer, White Christmas. White Christmas. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna say uh, this for a guy who hosts a podcast show. I've not seen these movies. He has four films in the National Film Registry: Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938, Yankee Doodle Dandy 1942, Casablanca from 1942, so great year, and Mildred Pierce from 45. But I'm gonna guess. The Jazz Singer and White Christmas are going to get in there. Wow. I, yeah, I just, I've not seen the right movies once again. So I've got it. I'm behind you guys in this and I need to, I need to be educated. So he's, um, he's a loyal guy because he, 44, he does uh, Passage to Marseille with Bogart, Claude Rains, who's in this movie, Michelle Morgan, who he wanted, but she was too expensive. She was, she wanted 55,000 and uh, Ingrid did it for 25,000 and Peter Laurie's back. So he's, He's got his uh, pet people here. There are many people who 
call Michael Curtiz the director who has the most films ever made. I read that he had 45 films made in Hungary, his home country. He did 15 in Austria, two in Germany, and then over 100 in Hollywood. So there's research out there that says that he has the most films directed of anybody ever, which I think is pretty lofty to say, and I'm not sure that that's ever been counted out, but there's a lot of films that he did in his career, for sure. Well, I mean, he's doing an amazing job, and I know back in this era, the producers and the director is not necessarily the controlling visionary that they'd later go on to be, but uh, clearly the writing, the producing, and the casting and everything clicked, which is what you have to do to make something this magnetic. So it's just amazing that, the, you know, again, the actors didn't have this chemistry. I, they have so much on-screen chemistry, but Bergman and Bogart didn't share much closeness off the screen. Bogart's wife at the time was incredibly jealous and fearful that she was having an affair with Bogart. And I mean, she's easy to be jealous over for sure. But I mean, she would give him a very hard time even on the set and Bogart would come out in a rage and they just didn't spend time with each other. There was apparently they had one lunch and Gertlein Fitzgerald was present for that. And they said the whole subject for the lunch was how they could get out of the movie. And yeah. they thought that this was a unbelievable, ridiculous movie. And so it's interesting that they didn't have a chemistry off the stage. Isn't it just weird? Like you assume when things are working so well on the screen, they must be great off the screen too to get to this point, but not the case. There was a lot of skepticism though with Humphrey Bogart casting because he had never really done a romantic lead or part before, if we want to call that what this is. He's a really had only done like the Maltese Falcon, other films where he's more of the rugged individual. Yeah. Um, so that so he himself had said that he didn't think he could do this role. And I don't think other, I think other people had the same feeling. Um, he was also two inches shorter than Ingrid Bergman. Right. Which is just another fun factoid. He had to stand on bricks and sit on extra seat cushions to give him a height advantage, which I always love hearing. Yes. Yeah. She's five foot nine and you know, he's five foot seven, but uh, you know, this doesn't stop Tom, Tom Cruise. They do the same, they do the same things as well. So it'll be like, here, Tom Cruise, stand on a milk crate next to Nicole Kidman, who's towering over you. So, I mean, it, yeah. it, it, uh, it, it's happened to this day too. Humphrey Bogart still resonated with the ladies and so does Tom Cruise. So you can be short and make everybody swoon. When you see a picture of Humphrey Bogart, you don't get it as much, but it's a different era. But the, the, the tough guy machismo thing is in full effect in this era. And so, um, you know, soft underside, to a hard exterior seems to be this iconic thing that resonates so strongly for the time. People went around quoting Bogart. Like he was just, he was cool at the time. Our values change over time. And so, like I said, if you just take a picture of Bogart, I don't think people go like, ah, that's a handsome dude, but it was how he carried himself. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Did you all read that Ronald Reagan was the first announced to be in this cast? No, I in the, didn't. In the, in the first press release that came out in 42 about this film, Ronald Reagan was listed. Now, they hadn't said who was playing what role, so it could be that he was going to play Laszlo, but he was one of the three billed um, people to play. But there's no documentation of that ever moving forward beyond that press release. So no one knows why that press release came out. Ronald Reagan never talks about this movie, particularly in his film career and there's actually been a lot of film critics that have speculated that had reagan actually been rick in this film then he wouldn't have actually entered into politics because his career would have taken off in ways that it never did so 
a lot of multiverse happening in there too what ifs yeah and speaking of lost opportunities mgm got a crack at this with everybody comes to rick the script for that came in and they offered joan allison uh and murray burnett five thousand dollars for it and they didn't they didn't want it and so they took it to Warner Brothers then got a crack at it. It's interesting that it's just like it's interesting who everybody says no to. Everybody said no to Star Wars. Lucas had a hard time getting it made and convincing people that this is what they wanted. I mean, Back to the Future, everybody said no, no. It's interesting that this was a hard sell also to get it made. I mean, Back to the Future, if we're, if we're pitching that movie, hey, here's a high school kid who accidentally time travels and tries to sleep with his mom. Like, <laughs> I can see where a studio would be like, mm, pass. And hey, this rocks the boat too. I mean, they had to edit this stuff out, but I mean, there was an implied intimacy between Ilsa and Rick. And they had to, like, they shot her in like a nightgown and stuff like that. But I mean, they had to be real careful about that stuff. Back then, you know, the people were worried that the, the virtuous nature of what you show on screen had to be watched out for. This was a dicey thing. That they had to watch out for. The script has Louis Renault's character accepting sex bribes in order for him to operate like he does, not just gambling and stuff like that. It's pretty within the character's character, to be honest with you, but they had to take all that stuff out. And it does make you sit there and go, like, cleaning all that up. I'm not saying you need a love scene in here with them being intimate, but it's just another level that resonates more. It shows that connection that Ilsa felt with Rick. Depriving it of that is. Perhaps I'm not a big fan of censorship in general, but it's amazing how it stands up so well without those things. You know, they had to clean it up and work their way around it. I want to hear the misunderstanding because the Curtis he had a really thick Hungarian accent, and some of the things you're talking about, like oh, I want a hooker or whatever. But he was asking for he asked for a poodle to appear in one scene, and they're looking high and low for a poodle, and they finally found one. And they bring it back on set, and Curtis starts screaming, a poodle, a poodle of water. And so <laughs> if you're trying to imply, like, hookers and bribes, I wonder, I wonder about some of the confusion that that would have had with his accent. I also want to see the poodle scene. Yeah. <laughs> Sneak peek for Chaz, change one thing, get a poodle in here. I, you, you ruined it. You really did. I just want a poodle <laughs> randomly in Rick's bar. Howard Hawks said in the interviews that uh, this was supposed to be, um, Curtis wasn't actually supposed to be on this either. He was going to direct Sergeant York from, in 1941, and, uh, Mike, and uh, Howard Hawks was the director of that, and they switched movies. One was a musical comedy, the other was this one, and Curtis clearly got the win of that trade. If, that's, if this is how it went down, it, it, it's astounding that directors are just like, eh. Because again, production studios tell you what to do back then. It's amazing that we have a trade of directors. It's serendipity. Yeah, the other film had more music, but what's weird is Curtiz winds up with music in quite a few of his films afterwards. It's my understanding they had screenplay writers, uh, Enos McKenzie and Wally Klein, did a, did, wrote for six weeks, and then they took them off, and Julius Epstein and Philip Epstein come on board, so the writers are changing six weeks into this. Yeah, they had three different sets of writers, and the Epstein's were the most well-known. They were responsible for a lot of, like, witty dialogue. The more I read about their twin brothers, the more I read about them, it sounds like they were almost like the Aaron Sorkin of that time. Like, they were, they were always brought in to punch up the dialogue, make it witty, 
make it fast paced, give it a lot of oomph, I guess. So that's what they were brought in to do, where some of like another screenwriter was brought in just to do the love scenes, the Paris scenes um, between Elsa and Rick. And then Howard Koch, who was the other screenwriter, was brought in to do the political stuff. So he like colored the, the screenplay with political information and historical information and things like that. But kind of crazy. And and like you said, Russell, all of it was happening simultaneously as they were shooting. So people were coming and going. It sounds it sounds like a terrible idea to have that many people writing on piece, but I guess they all brought what they had to it. It's interesting. I guess I'm not sure if it's Curtis or or if it's Halby Wallace, the producer, who's primarily responsible for this, but whoever's watching this seemingly did get the best of everybody and put it all together in a way that worked really well. Yeah, definitely. I know that Wallace did not like the Epstein brothers. They put it has a lot, and eventually, in 1952, Jack Warner ended up giving their names to the House Un-American Committee in 1952, and the Epstein said in their written statement to the committee that the only subversive organization they were a part of was the Warner Brothers film company. So there was some bad blood between Epstein's and Warner Brothers at the time, or maybe it was just Jack Warner. I don't know the extent of it, but it was an interesting relationship for sure. And we've got to talk about the cinematography too. It's good. I like this noir kind of low-key lighting, the black and white high contrast lighting. Maybe it's because I took a photography class where I got into black and white photography myself, but I like these strong black and whites that you have in the in this movie. It's so powerful. Like there's a scene where like Rick's just in the bar and like, you know, like his face is half illuminated and it's showing the divide that's in him. Maybe you get more in your palette with color, but there's something so visibly, viscerally clear with some of these black and white techniques that are very poignant. I do like to go back and enjoy black and white movies. I clearly like color movies too, but when, when done well like this, or Maltese Falcon, like, again, all the lighting, all the framing and all that stuff, somehow it seems more clear when you remove the color. You're removing one piece of the palette of part of the symphony, necessarily, and you can focus more on, say, the strings all of a sudden. And, and, and you're, you're probably, probably more of a... Again, Mark, you probably are more adept at being able to parse all these things out. But for me, removing that one piece of it somehow makes me appreciate and able to just lock in more on these other things. Well, yeah, when we get to maybe the superlatives, you'll hear my love of the technical stuff here. Because, yeah, I'm, I geek out over it 100%. The lighting, the set design, it's really tricky to, in a black and white, especially 1940s, but really any time, to film, film a black and white movie and have a depth of focus and have that whole Rick's Cafe lit the way it was and still be able to make out what's happening in the back of the room like that, that transcends for me. Like that's everything. It's, it's so, it's so beautiful. Yeah. And how they frame people too. how they position people. They put Ilsa literally between the two and you don't pick this up the first time. That's why I said this movie demands rewatch. There's, there's moments like that. There's a sense of what's being deliberate with it. And there are some moments, like when they cut in the background, like the plane coming in, it's like a giant plane looking like it's about to crash directly into the ground. But I mean, this is a wartime budget. I don't want to totally make excuses for it, but they had to be somewhat resourceful with this stuff. You know, they, this stuff is uh, done at a time when they had a lot of limitations. I think it's a shame they couldn't go shoot it on site. I mean, because Casablanca is a very interesting place. I actually sent Chad a few images ahead of time, and 
it's just one of those things like i would like to move the camera through these tight streets and i would like to see it's a it's a coastal city and it's actually quite beautiful and so it's a world that we don't necessarily pick up the geography the climate and and everything and i i don't know why i perceived it being so hot there but it's it's not and there's something that these sets are perhaps the only thing that aren't aging well for me i don't know if anything else is missing some other things but to me this is the sets are cardboard ish however they're right for what we're doing because the actors are so good and the way they shoot those minimal things they're smart with what they have is i guess is what i'm trying to say yeah i mean stuff like the car ride uh, in paris is a clear set and that that didn't age well yeah that's one of the more obvious things and they're using stock war footage for whatever reason if there's a war we have to show pictures of a tank driving in a random locale and we have to show a bomber flying over something just to tell people oh yeah it's war i don't really know why we need that those are my complaints as far as things that don't hold up i like the set i like the minimalism i do wish i know you were saying you like black and white i wish i could see color images what blew my mind was seeing the original Adams Family set colorized, seeing all the color in it. The Munsters set as well, seeing all the color that it just, it always seemed drab to me, but it's just this, these bright sets, and I bet Rick's was very bright too. Yeah, I'm sure that's true, yeah. Russell, you talked about the limitations. I did read that they were not able to use aluminum, obviously wartime. They also couldn't use any fabric that wasn't cotton. So as they're filming this kind of exotic location, you know, silks, all these other fabrics would have been the main kind of garments people were wearing. But yeah, everyone was wearing cotton. Um, So I thought that was interesting. I also read that they had hired, well, as you kind of pointed out, most of their shots are interior. I think they only did one exterior on location day of shooting at the airport. So everything was inside, and they ended up hiring a bunch of military vets, Warner Brothers did, to screen and to watch for air raids. So, like, all the studios had on all the rooftops all these military vets watching for air raids the whole time. And so they couldn't even, like, go outside. They were all stuck inside pretty much for the whole uh, 59 days or however long it took to take this. Um, which is just fascinating to me. I even like Rick's set is three separate pieces. I like how the camera moves through the set. There's a scene where they're like on the steps and like Rick goes up the stairs to his office and the camera does not cut. It moves through a dark patch where they don't light it. And then the camera moves almost like a diorama of like you're in Rick's cafe, pan, 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 and now uh, and going and going up. And now we're in Rick's office. And it just moved through the wall. That is very set-like. However, it's done very tastefully to the point where I thought, oh, that's, that's creative to me, as opposed to I felt like I walked through a cutout, which I definitely did. Yeah, I could see that. I think lighting is their best friend here. The sets are lagging. They use lighting to emphasize what they want to quite well, and the camera too. And it's interesting because nowadays we have light designers, we have people that we bill with these traits, but back then, like, you can't find it. There's a cinematographer, and I'm sure that person had 50 people underneath them, but they're the only people, like, person that gets credit for the camera, lighting, all, like, they weren't big into giving everyone their dues back then, so no. the lighting, which I agree is, is 
beautiful, especially with the interior shots. But beyond just the set decorator and cinematographer, we don't really know who was responsible for that. We just have to assume the cinematographer had a huge hand in that, which he probably did. I'm sure he did, but I'm sure he didn't work alone. Oh, yeah. I mean, look at a movie reel today. And yes, there's digital effects take a lot of hands and stuff like that. But I mean, back then they roll the credits sometimes at the beginning of the movie and it's just like two pages of like 50 names and that's it. And clearly, even at the time, there's people not being credited. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no key grip is getting credited in 1942. <laughs> Sorry for the best boy, you're the worst boy. Right. <laughs> the the wardrobe is another one of those things where I felt like it might have been a little bit heavy-handed in some in some ways and then what you mentioned too about the cotton thing is one of those things where you're just like, "Oh, that's that makes sense." You know, the only thing that this movie I think benefits if you ever were to remake it and you shouldn't, especially with Madonna and Ashton Kutcher, <laughs> is going on site and having a larger budget to have these panning shots through the streets to have conversations. I mean, Morocco's cool. You can see all these like rooftops of these tight streets and they go like seemingly right up to the coast and stuff like that. It's not the most colorful town in fairness to you, Chad. Like it's, it's pretty tan and white and dusty white. That, that, that's the palette, but um, especially at this point in history. Nevertheless, there's clothing being hung up. There's like markets, there's vendors and stuff like that. So there's, there is, there's richness that we don't get to get a chance to here i do like that they really give you a sense of place how close it is to the airfield like even at the front of the door like you can see the flashing lights and stuff moving in they use that over and over again the the light tower and stuff like that so and there's a scene where they're sitting at the end of a runway these are scenes that i think could be super beautiful with more money yeah 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 i agree if they were to do the location film in 2004 they opened up a replica of rick's cafe in casablanca so they have a location ready to go if they want to do it. If you had a conversation at the end of a runway, it would be like in Wayne's World, though, where they sit there talking to each other and then they missed enormous chunks of their conversation as the planes went over. Right, definitely. Yeah, I, I read that Alfred Hitchcock really hones in on the lighthouse effect. You mentioned the rotating light that appears in the background in most of the interior scenes um, and how much he really appreciated that and paid homage to that in several of his films when there were people on the run from the cops and they would use that spotlight, he always attributed that to Casablanca, kind of his main homage to that. I like how there's a big change in how they're doing the flashbacks. They have these the transitions are different than, and yes, it is a montage, but there's a vibe that changes as they do this. And not only is Bogart playing the character at a warmer, happier time in his life, which he certainly is, and he's doing a good job of that too. Um, but again, the lighting, again, it's brighter. It feels different. It's not just music uh, doing this. It's all of these things coming together. And that shows the dark singularity that he's in as Sam's playing a song to him alone in the bar and how sad and lonely he feels all of a sudden. The number of juxtapositions of that. Rick's bar is different and gets darker throughout, the, like towards the end of the movie. It's focusing more on what the activity that's happening, and it is. When, when you first walk in, it's, it's actually pretty vibrant, and there's light, and you're just taking in the whole scene, they're panning, they're moving the camera a ton. And then later on, again, background's dimmed down, focuses more on the character. What do you think about the music on this one, Mark? Well, actually, the, the song, As Time Goes By, which after this film kind of exploded, was probably my introduction to the film without knowing it. Any of our listeners who were in traveling strings groups have played As Time Goes By on, on the hundreds of times. So I've played that song countless times 
I've heard it in my sleep probably. Um, so that song has lingered for me and getting to hear it like in a, in its rightful place, right? In, in this narrative home um, is pretty cool. And Sam, the pianist, is one of my favorite characters. So yeah, I, I, I appreciated that. There were some other songs that I recognized as well, but that one definitely was the most popular of all the music. Yeah, this had me right from the get-go, man. I I love the swing music. I love this era. And Sam had a wonderful voice. I understand he wasn't actually playing the piano that was dubbed in, but he did a good... He's a drummer. Yeah, he had a, he did a convincing job. They said he, the pianist was offset and he would match the hand movements. You know, I, I play a little bit of piano. My wife plays piano. He has me fooled. So he's doing a great job there. But even some of the... The fun throwaway songs, the knock on wood, where the band's knocking on their heads to the beat. Like, there's just a lot of fun. And then we get to that. It's the national anthem of France, the La, Mar- La Marseillaise scene. And that that clip got played after the 2015 terrorist attacks in Paris. It's still a very important clip to the French, uh, to other people, but knowing it was taking place during World War II, yeah, they couldn't get whatever the Nazi anthem was. They had to trade it for some German anthem. Knowing that they had the boldness to sing this French national anthem, which is a song about resistance, it's just such a powerful scene. You know, the actors are resonating with that particular point because some of them are displaced as a result of the war. Like, they're singing with real pain and passion as they're doing this uh, it's an interesting we didn't mention this but the, the top to bottom there are only uh three actors born in the united states in this movie bogar julie wilson and joy page and everybody else 34 different countries and nations are on the cast and crew and it's a very diverse cast especially for this point in time yeah and you gotta admire conrad veit who who plays major strasser his wife i believe was jewish but he was very outspoken and it cost him his career in Germany. But he basically signed up and said, I'll play a Nazi in whatever film you want, as long as they're clearly a bad guy. So huh. he, was, he was very active in the anti-Nazi sen- sentiment. So you guys want to hand out some awards? Love to. Always. Right. Mark, who is the MVP of Casablanca? Well, I kind of previewed this a little bit, but I got pretty nerdy with most of my awards going to the tech people. Um, so I gave my MVP to Arthur Edison, who's a cinematographer, and Carl's Jules Whale, I'm going to butcher that name, who is an art director, who were largely credited for all the lighting choices throughout. So I think that that really, every time I watch it, I want to I want to pay more attention to what the lighting people are doing because I think it's so well done for a black and white film especially. So that's my MVP. Great choice. Chad. Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, for me, I his his charm is just unparalleled. Man, I I can't imagine this movie working without his presence. I hate to go to modern day so much, but I can't think of anyone else that has as much charisma as he does short of like Harrison Ford, who can just carry a movie on his own charm. So Humphrey Bogart for me. Yeah, that's a good choice. I was just so taken by Bergman's non-verbal acting. You know, when she's just, she does a lot with a look, a glance down, a look off in the distance. Again, some of this is getting the, the help of Mark's choice, but I mean, she's very good 
at getting those moments across. She doesn't come into the movie until 24 minutes into it, and she doesn't meet Rick until about 33 minutes into it. And it's not that long a movie. It's about an hour and 41 minutes or so. But even though she shows up a little bit later than you would think, and she's not the protagonist, I'm going to give her my best. I'm surprised she wasn't nominated for this role. That's still shocking every time I, I see that. Yeah. It is. Now, best supporting actor, Mark. So I went with Julie Wilson, who played Sam the Pianist. Mm. I had known that he wasn't playing piano. I thought he did that very well, as Chad pointed out. I also thought that he did really well at playing a very sad character. I mean, he's very loyal, obviously, but he doesn't ever, on camera at least, we never really see him be treated well. Like, he's always talked down to, he's always giving or being given orders. And I just feel like he had a lot of heart and soul that he put that into that character. And, and yeah, I would watch him play fake piano in any day. That's an interesting take because I, my take was for the time. It, I was actually going to say, is this a little bit progressive because Rick and Sam have a relationship of friendship, not just employership. They go back to France. They come in together. It's pointed out as Sidney Greenfield's character is trying to steal him and come over to the blue parrot. He's offering him more money. And he just gives him the response of, I can't spend the money I get paid here. Like, he's connected to him. He stays. There's a friendship, and they they share a bond, and they're actual friends and stuff like that. And he's lower build than you would think, undoubtedly, due to the, the you know, just the time. Uh, his, his presence on screen is bigger than his billing. But just their friendship and I, I, the amount of, I was going to say, while he works for him, he's an employee of him, Rick's barking orders around to lots of people, I'd say. Sam, he has this personal connection with, and clearly, you know, he orders his barkeep and his maitre d' and all that stuff around, but there's something different with Sam and him. I was going to say, just their friendship seemed progressive to me. I do, I do like that Rick looks out for him when he's selling the bar to Ferrari. He tells him, hey, Sam gets 25%, and Ferrari points out, he's, I know it's 10, but okay. So he, he's helping out Sam later on, but... Yeah, I, I do get a little of that condescension, and I I had wondered if it was skin tone or just personality, and I don't think that's really fleshed out enough. Well, I think Rick in general was condescending yeah. to everybody, and so I totally agree. I mean, it's definitely a progressive relationship between the two, but I never really saw Rick be nice to him, I guess, was my point. Like, their friendship obviously goes further beyond what we see on the screen. They have a history. I feel like Sam carried that relationship and made it more believable to me. Yeah. For whatever reason. He is yeah. a sad character because he's watching all this and his friend get hurt again. Yeah. Yeah. Chad, best supporting. I've praised him already, but Claude Rains as Captain Renault, I think it takes a strong character actor to play such a sycophant, but still be likable. And he just has this knowing smile when he's pointing out, remember, this gun is pointed right at your heart. And then he says, that is my least vulnerable spot. Yeah. <laughs> like, ah, like, he's a good quote machine in his own right. On a normal movie, you're right. Uh, he would be even higher. But this is a very quotable movie. But he's my yeah. pick as well. I, I think he's, he's slimy and enjoyable in all, the, in all the most fun ways. He embraces it. And there's moments where he lets the guard down and you see who he is underneath all that procedure and stuff like that. And he's a, hey, I got to do this out of formality. And he doesn't like the incoming German rain any better than Rick does. And that comes across. And he's, he plays the part so well. So 
Padres. Good job. I like it. Mark and Jim. Well, I'm going tech again. I had to go on IMDb to see who it was, but the set designer, George James Hopkins, um, I looked a little bit more into what he had done, and, I mean, tons of wonderful films. Uh, Streetcar Named Desire, he did The Music Man, and My Fair Lady, Hello, Dolly, he's done a lot of musicals. Hmm. Um, so really well-respected, and like I said, I, I teach Rick's Cafe. Like, when I teach Casablanca, I start with, with Rick's Cafe, so... Um, it's set design for me. Love it. Interesting. I'm going to come maybe a little bit more on that note later, but uh, Chad and Jim. I can't help but choose Peter Lorre. He's just someone, whenever he's on the screen, you can't stop watching him. He's he's odd, but he's fascinating. And his later chemistry, this is what makes me love him a little bit more, is all his chemistry with Vincent Price in later movies. He's just... He's such a fun, fun character that I wish had had a longer career than what he did. Yeah, we covered him in a Maltese Falcon when we did that on one of our earliest episodes, and he just he's just so good. He's like Steve Buscemi on steroids, like yeah. there's something so distinct about him. Man, I always forget he's in this. Every time I watch it, I, I get reminded. I'm like, oh, how did I forget that he's in this? It's the expressions. It's his physical features. It's... His, his voice, voice yeah. I mean, there's just, I mean, he's so distinct in all the best ways. My hidden gem's going to be S.Z. Saskel. He is the maitre d' of Rick's Cafe. He gets all these little sarcastic lines and little moments yeah. of comedic relief in there. He's a heavy guy in there uh, with the white hair and the glasses, and he doesn't take himself too seriously. It's fun to be around. But on the other hand, he's also part of this resistance movement that helps move the plot and brings what's happened with as Victor's being his world's being crashed in around him. So he actually has more screen time than Sidney Greenfield or, or Peter Lorre. And like, he's not a big name actor. So, uh, S.C. Zaskel gave me a lot of fun in this. So he's my hidden gem. Um, I like it. Recast. If you had to recast somebody, this is, this can be tough to do in the time, but Mark, if you had to recast somebody and put somebody else in place, who would it be? Yeah, I broke the rules cause I am not good with older actors. So I went ahead and rebooted it for today. I know Chad, wow. you were saying you don't think that, it's hard to come up with someone. The only person I can come up with that maybe has the magnetism to deliver, similar to Bogart, would be Michael Shannon. Hmm. But I don't really see, like, appearance-wise, he doesn't look like a Rick to me. So I said Michael Shannon, but as John Hamm. <laughs> so, I was going to say, John, John Hamm is somebody came to my mind. As the, yeah, I had that... to make a, a marriage of the two, so I cheated. Okay. Yeah, and then I said for for Elsa, I thought maybe Rooney Mara or Elizabeth Olsen would be good. Interesting. As a Cowboys fan, I do not support casting any Maras in any movies. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, boy, the, the I I am strictly staying away from this uh, recasting in today's standards. It's fun that you did that because I, I wow that the weight of that I just get the same thing of all the producers of saying like nope, I'm not touching that. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Chad, Chad, what about you? Uh, if you had to recast somebody and put something in their place, who would it be? I sadly went for Conrad Veidt. I love him in The Man Who Laughs, but I didn't really find him as menacing as I thought he could be here. It, it's so awesome, his story, that it cost him his career in Germany and his homeland, but I, I want someone crueler, and so I went with the very English Peter Cushing. Oh, can't go wrong with he would be about 30-something here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. See that? Yeah, I can see that. 
And I alluded to this earlier, but I want to like Victor Laszlo more than I do. I'm coming after Paul Heinrich on this one. Plus, I don't think people liked working with him very much. And <laughs> uh, he, so he's born in 1908. I liked Henry Fonda, and he's born in 1905, so he's only three years older. So I'm going to put Henry Fonda in the role for Victor Laszlo. Okay. Um, yeah. We, we covered him in 12 Angry Men, but he was an established actor at the time as well. He's coming off an Oscar nomination of Grapes of Wrath. And. Oh. In uh, 1940 as well. You're going to have to put him on several boxes to be able to get that height. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, there's a likability about him. And also a very good actor. He could stir inspiration more. I've seen him stir more inspiration in 12 Angry Men. That comes later, but still, uh, I'd like to see him here. Absolutely. Best shot. So mine's about 51 minutes in. Maybe if you blinked, you might miss it. But it's where it's right after the scene where Rick tells off Ilsa and she storms out of the bar and the head of rap. Um, and then it cuts right to the police station, which is underground, it looks like. But the shot is through the bars. And I kept picking up on this, this bar theme throughout kind of back to the lighting idea. And that was kind of the first time that you actually saw physical bars and people behind them, even though they, it was just a window. But it was a really cool shot that kind of set up the fact that people are trapped in this location. And they tried to mimic that with the lighting throughout. Several times you'll see like bars in the background with the lights. But this was the first shot where we saw actual bars in the foreground. And I loved how the camera was positioned looking down into the police station through the bars, and I thought that was really cool. I love that. I didn't catch that at all. Really great pick. Chad, do you have a best shot? Mine was just during the drinking in the dark scene where he's pining after Ilsa. I thought it was really thematically on point, and when she swings open the door and there's this bright light just shining in, I thought it was such a nice touch that she was just this light of his dark, dark world. Yeah, it's great. Great, and that was one of my runner-ups because it was hard to pick this one, but yeah. Mm-hmm. I think maybe you'll appreciate this one, Mark, because mine is going to be when we first see Rick's Cafe, the introduction of it. We see the neon sign above the door, and the camera's high, and then it moves down. And this, this lighting and the shadows are really rich over this ornamented door. And it's very, very dark, and we see the door open up, and you see a little glimpse of light, not like a beam of light. And then people are going in. A lot of people are going in. And you end up following the people in. So you're kind of going over the shoulder of the people going. You feel like you're going in with this. The camera actually even shows you the doorman, which is not like a thing that you want to do. It's very immersive. And you don't just directly see in this place. You catch one of those like arches in Rick's off to the right a little bit. And the camera is, I can't believe the movement. This is Spielbergian. I can see why Spielberg likes this. The camera has now taken two L's. So it's gone above and down forward and it looks at the doorman to the right and then it slowly moves back and now we see the full extent of rick's bar through framed underneath one of those big arches again you have the control over this with a set but nevertheless the camera's just moving so well and then there's a hard cut and you're moving very quickly left not super fast but i mean relatively quick for a camera at this point and it's panning across the activity of the room and we have gathered so much sense of this place under great limitations, I might add, with the camera work here. I mean, it's just so great. And then it moves forward, turns left, and we see Sam. And it moves in on Sam playing the piano. And that is one heck of a way to enter a room. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me, and it reminds me of Martin Scorsese, I think Mean Streets. 
there's a scene and I and I remember Scorsese talking about Rick's Cafe and how it was shot and how it was like him using a handheld camera going into the bar following the lead. There's a, there's definitely a lot of homages to that scene, Russell. That's a good choice. It's just great flow, good energy with the camera. Very interesting. And I don't I don't expect that at this era to be honest with you. Yeah, so. definitely. Best scene. So I also chose one of the scenes with Rick at the bar drinking alone. I really like the scene where him and Sam are having a back and forth. It's right after he saw Ilsa for the first time again. And I love their dialogue back and forth. Sam's trying to get him to leave and he wants to stay and drink. And he's telling Sam to leave. And Sam's like, I'm not going to leave. And then Sam's trying to convince him to go driving or go fishing or something. I don't even know. But it, it was the dialogue, the relationship there. I really liked that. That scene was probably my favorite. And the lighting of it all was wonderful. It's a great choice. Chad, what about you? Les Marseilles. I, it's such an inspiring scene. And knowing that this was shot in 1942, or 1941, 1942, and just how much it went on to inspire other people, uh, for me, it's, it's the tension-breaking scene. So you get to see a little bit of standing up to the Germans. Well, I'm shocked. I think you have to pick this. I, I uh, the end. I think that this is what the movie's iconic moment is when Rick decides to put reveals that he decides to put Victor on the plane instead of himself with Ilsa, and she's taken aback by it as well. And so is so is the inspector and everybody. You know, and then he ends up shooting. It's just a very exciting scene. It's all coming together here. There's so many feelings here. Uh, this is. Cinema at its finest. So uh, I have to say that I'm, I had a runner-up just in case, and I figured it would be taken. But I really like the scene where Ilsa asks Sam to play as time goes by, which nobody actually ever says play it again, Sam. Yep. Uh, you know, um, she, she asked me to play it again, Sam, for, or sorry. <laughs> play it, for Sam. For old time's sake. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. For old Gosh, times. I, I, I see. I, I'm myself Freudianly slipping doing this. So, yes, thank you. Um, but she is very contemplative as her bat, her feelings are coming through. And then we see Rick meet her and the pain and the anger and all this coming through. It's the unspoken. I, again, if I were to, I don't teach an acting class, but if I did, I would think this would be one of the ones that I would go to. The actors do a lot without what they're saying verbally and yeah. they just do it really well. And this scene is so good at that. So I have to pick the last scene. So I had to throw that in there. So best wardrobe or makeup moment. Mark. So I went with Rick's suits for the whole, well, maybe not just the suits, really Rick's outfits for the whole film, because I don't think he ever wore black, which a lot of the male characters do and did in the film. But I think consciously they kept him in light colors, which was a very cool choice. But then also learning on top of that, that all of it was cotton makes me instantly like sweating, just thinking about wearing a cotton suit, a white suit. So I went with all of the white and off-white wardrobe. For Rick throughout. His suits were great. Mm-hmm. And Chad, you're a hat guy. Is it going to be the hats? It's it's going to be a hat. Sig- <laughs> Signor Ferrari's ensemble with the fez and the suit. I really, really liked how they made Sydney Green-, Green Street look. I just, I dug everything about Signor Ferrari's look. So that's my choice. Yeah, that's a really good choice. So, my best word we're making moments. When we meet her, Ilsa has this really elegant, but not so showy dress. Like it fits her very well. It's conservative by today's standards, but it's uh, what appears to be a white dress. It's on screen white. It's it's just cutting this really flattering way, and 
I, I gotta say, to walk into a room and to stop the music for she pulls it off well. Yeah. Change one thing. Mark. So this might not be popular, but I thought I wanted more Nazi presence. I feel like they were very soft-handed with the Nazi references. I think you did see some visual cues, but I thought that it needed to be a starker, different... I, I get that, you know, Rick is this neutral place, and Rick is trying to be neutral himself, and so there was a lot of, of how do we portray neutrality visually, but I don't know. I thought that we we could have had a clearer depiction of Nazism as villains. The movie opens up with a dude getting shaken down, asked for his papers and shooting him down in the street. That's a pretty strong introduction for the Nazis. But at, at the beginning, but after that, it's pretty, it's pretty mundane after that. Okay, so you're saying a, a, a less friendly, less kind version of Nazis. And that's in line with what Chad was saying for his villain as well. So uh, all right, yeah, Chad but... and Mark want more Nazis. You heard it here on the Retro Movie Roundtable. <laughs> it is, it is kind of jarring during a uh, low... La Marseillaise, when suddenly there's like half the bar filled with Nazis, it's like, where did they come from? We've seen two or three, so yeah. I, Isn't that I how we always it. feel about Nazis? Like, where did these guys come from? <laughs> like, They're still true. here? <laughs> there probably yeah. needs to, needed to be more punching Nazis in this movie. Yeah. Well, we we got to do Indiana Jones for that. And, <laughs> and it has maps. So, I mean, well, there you go. it's got all that's, the things that we need here. That's five stars <laughs> in Russell's book. And hats, too. So there you go. And hats! Yes. (laughs) Chad, change one thing. I've mentioned it earlier, but I think I'm blowing the budget out and finding some other way. If we have to show tanks and bombers, do something other than obvious stock footage. Like, I, I just don't want that in the movie. Somehow... Go rent a German Panzer. Go go rent a German bomber. I don't know how widely those are available. Heck, you use American versions. Most audiences aren't going to know the difference between a Sherman or a Pershing tank and a, a German Tiger. They're not going to know. Yeah, yeah. The main the main German bad dude flew in on a awfully beat up plane for somebody of his ilk. Which is in Disney World now. It's on the Jungle Cruise. The back half of it. The uh, the escape plane. So yeah. I thought I thought that should be a more glamorous ride coming in for Conrad. Well, these these are the African Nazis. The they're second fiddle to the European war, so the the North Africa campaign was not uh, not as highly funded. They don't get the glitz and glamour. All right, my change one thing is going to be at one point says Ilsa says the boy playing the piano somewhere. I've seen him. There's very few things that actually age this movie. And I said in many ways how they treat Sam is somewhat progressive, but. Calling a black man boy? Um, yeah. So much of this movie's timeless. And then that one thing is just like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, so that ra- that kind of reeks a little bit of racism, but the same thing is true for sexism with, here's looking at you, kid. Like, every time he called her a kid, I'm like, I cringed a bit. <laughs> it's like, oh, stop calling someone you love a kid. <laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't <Yeah>. like it. <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> that's just one of those greatest quotes. That's still, that's still in the lexicon. So, best quote. This is a tough one. If there's ever been a tough time to do this, Mark, what was your best quote? The one that made me laugh out loud is Major Strasser asks what of Rick, what is your nationality? And his answer is, I'm a drunkard. <laughs> and yeah, that made me laugh out loud. I think the Louis- line that line follows is something like, he's a citizen of the world, or that makes you a citizen of the world, or something like that. But yes. I, I'm a drunkard. I probably would get a t-shirt with that on it just to laugh at myself <laughs> with that on it. I really like that 
chemistry that Rick and Louis have. Like Louis, like seems like you don't have anything to worry about with Rick and stuff like that. Like he likes him because he's been letting him win at roulette and stuff like that. And yeah, I like that symbiotic system of like uh, I'm. I, I allow this to happen and I prosper from it kind of thing. And it shows throughout this. And that's, that's a really interesting thing upon rewatches. And that, that, that line that you said is one of those moments where you can really appreciate that more upon repeat watches. So, Chad, best quote. I went with an Ugarte line. I have many friends in Casablanca, but because you despise me, somehow you're the only one I trust. Ooh, that is a good one. That is good. None of us, I think, picked the six main quotes off of this. I, I really do like it when Louis and Rick are talking and he's just, what makes you think that I'd want to ever have Victor Laszlo? And he's like, because my dear Ricky, I suspect that underneath that cynical shell, you're a hearted sentimentalist. Um, <laughs> delivered so well. Yeah. It's not one of the greatest quotes, but to me, it's just like, Louis makes me have a fun time with this movie. Yeah, I could uh, totally see a modern, like, Tim Curry in this role. They just have uh, that same kind of cadence oh, yeah. and and grin and uh, like a cheshire cat yeah it'd be great if i had to pick one of the main six i'd i'd say louis this i think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship yeah a little smile to get up out of your seats and go off with what a, what a great way to as they're walking into the horizon in the fog so come full circle so mark on a scale of five stars half star intervals what would you give casablanca so i gave it a three and a half i think the main thing that i still struggle with with the film is the pro-war sentiment and i think only because i mean i appreciate the film as a time capsule for when it was made and i think that that's still very fascinating but whether it would resonate with audiences today i think there's some question to that you know i think i don't know if many american audiences would understand a character who wants to be neutral and whose main you know eventually obviously we get to the point where he isn't but you have to sympathize with neutrality for a good portion of this film. And I just don't know, as someone who's grown up in the last 30 years of war, <laughs> I just don't see that neutrality is a huge selling point anymore for audiences. So I don't know that it would resonate as much today as it did back then. But I gave it a three and a half, basically, as a as a time capsule of this time in history that is really important to document. And I'm glad that there's a story about it. Wow, you're tough, Mark. Top. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. Chad, how about you? I went five stars, man. This is, uh, it's consistently ranked as one of the greatest movies of all time, and I completely think it deserves that title. Uh, the dialogue we've spent endless amount of time talking about, it's just extremely quotable. The genre has tension. It's really palpable. And you can sympathize with Rick throughout the movie. I, I sympathize with him struggling to do the right thing and it costs him his happiness. I think this is just a wonderful film and thank you, Mark, for shortlisting it. I'm so glad we got to talk about it. Yeah, yeah I, I'm, with you, I'm with you, Chad. This is a five for me. I mean, uh, this is really up there on my all-time movies. Studying it further, uh, it's hard to bump them up when they're that high on your own personal rankings, but going through, studying it, returning to it, again, bumped it up a couple more slots. I gotta say, I don't want to give too much away from my interview rankings, but um, this was very, 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 very high. 
Oh my goodness. Our end of year rankings are going to be a bloodbath. Good grief. They are going to be hard. <laughs> Things are going to seem unapparently low. It's been a very strong year. This only makes it more complicated here at the halfway point. But Yeah, this and I, Shawshank. I, I... Come on, people request Troll 2 just so we can... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by all of averages, you'd think you'd have some of that. But uh, there are videos, though, where people just like saying, like, what's this Casablanca movie? And then they sit there and go like, whoa! I'm so drawn into this and I'm so I'm so blown away. So I, I actually think that anybody who was willing to give it the time of their day, it still blows their mind. And even as World War Two gets to be farther in the past, I, I, I there's something that rises above the war to this that's still resonating so strongly with people. And it is very exciting. And I, I think you nailed it. I think you gave me a big piece of why I love this so much, Mark. It does a lot of different things and it does them very well. Yep. I agree. Chad, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Would love to. You know what was big in the turn of the millennium? Murder. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Frailty from 2001 is our first option. A mysterious man arrives to the offices of the FBI agent and recounts his childhood and how a religious fanatic father received visions of him telling him to destroy the people who were, in fact, option two. Murder by numbers from 2002. Two gifted high school students execute a perfect murder and then become engaged in an intellectual contest with a seasoned homicide detective. Option three, identity from 2003. Stranded in a desolate Nevada motel during a nasty rainstorm, 10 strangers become acquainted with each other when they realize that they are being killed off one by one. Oh man, we've got to do frailty. Can't wait. All right. And Mark, thank you so much for coming on to the show. We had a great time. Yeah, thanks for having me, as always. To all the Lords, ladies and knights, the Retro Movie Roundtable, thank you. We invite you to reach out to us because we want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook and follow us at, on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And providing and producing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. Any contributions you make? are much appreciated and will go towards making the show for better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Chad? There's no defense against the will of God. There's no court of appeals in hell. The end times have come, not in flames, but in mist.